Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. How are you today? I'm doing great. Oops. I'm doing great. So Brian likes to be known as Grandmaster B. That's what he decided on. I need a nickname for you. So that's your homework for the week is you need a nickname. A nickname for me. Yeah, I see. Yeah. So you could be like, you know, I don't know, Master Ovens or Oven Master. Starts to sound like no. a cooking show. No? N- none of those things. Oven mitts? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> pass. Okay. How will you think about it and come up with a cool name? In the meantime. Uh, yeah. Let's take a look at some feedback. Our first email comes in from Baku. Baku writes in and says, Hi there, guys. Kevin asked about a note-taking app recommendation on episode 315. A couple of cross-platform and open-source options with encryption support for him. And he links to Turtle App and Joplin. Noah... Uh, mused about sustainable technology in 315, and I think use and throw is a first world problem. For the vast majority of people living in the so-called third world, throwing away a faulty or damaged piece of equipment is simply not an option. They can afford, as buying a new device is really expensive. And while the repair is still relatively a cheap option in those countries, most people will use a device as long as possibly practically to do so. The news section, episode 315 is a duplicate of 314. Yeah, small glitch. Thanks. Um, So a couple of things there. Uh, You know, when we talk about sustainable technology, part of what frustrates me is the fact that you're right. If you live in, it doesn't matter how poor you are. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. If you buy an iPhone today, the only software you're ever going to run on that iPhone is iOS. And when Apple decides that they no longer want to support that particular hardware version of iOS, unless you have somebody extremely dedicated to the idea of getting an alternate operating system on there, you don't have any choices. So I I bring it to the forefront of attention because it impacts your ability to be able to own something and use it the way you want to use it forever. You're beholden to a company. And so that would be just as true in a third world as it is here. They just oftentimes, you know, they're not buying the Apple iPhones. They're buying the Android versions or the cheap Chinese knockoff of the Android versions. And by their nature, because the whole premise of those lesser expensive devices is, well, they just make a piece of hardware and they slap a free piece of software on it and ship it out the door. And most of the time it kind of works sort of, and that's good enough. They're not going to fall victim to that. Your thoughts, Steve. I was uh, I've been following Chris Fisher's kind of journey for Graphene OS. Uh, yeah. I've been toying around with this idea for a while because I haven't been I I'm not really satisfied with the way that Google treats their ecosystem. And my wife has an iPhone, and I I kind of I have liked in the past the the Apple ecosystem and for the for their story around privacy and security. Even if it may be a sham, at least they have one. Whereas Google's like, nah, we don't have anything. But uh, 
been considering this graphene OS thing that he's been doing. I've I've got a couple pixels around. I might actually go that way for my next phone. I I, I completely agree. I I love the I. So here, I guess here's the deal. I like the idea of. I love the idea of Graffini OS, and I love the fact that the guy, where it started for me was really with Copperhead OS, and he made the decision to nuke the keys as opposed to um, fall in line, so to speak. And, you know, we provided some coverage on that on Ask Noah, so you can go back and listen to that that full episode if anybody wants the, the full picture. But the short version is he, the man has integrity to the security of his users to the point that he was willing to risk his own legal liability and, and that, that sort of thing. So I... I, I like the idea in concept. I'm a little off put if I'm honest by the fact that it Graffini OS, as far as I understand it, is reliant on a device made by Google. Google stops making the pixel. Nothing else has the security chips in it that will allow Graffini OS to run, if I understand that correctly. Yeah, well, they definitely are only currently supporting the pixel phone. Like that's the that's the path. But I mean, when you're already living in a duopoly, I mean that doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me. Yeah. It's not like we're it's not like we're just buying into the duopoly and letting you know a mass migration allowing the duopoly. We're already in the midst of it and we're trying to dig ourselves out. Yes. So you might as well, you know, pick the flagship and, and build for that. Hundred percent. No, I completely agree. I love it. Our second email comes in from Norm. Norm writes in and says, Hi Noah and Steve. I hope this reaches you before tonight's show. I had planned on calling in, but family schedule changed, so I'll have to email. Over the last few years, I've become the default system admin for my family, which has been going great. However, there is something that continues to perplex us. My folks tend to be old country farmhouse in a rural area, and the house has grown quite large in the decades before my parents bought it. Each additional, each addition seems to have used a slightly different set of materials. And because of the size and materials, we've yet to find a consistently good Wi-Fi setup. I know there's a lot of variables with this, but I'm hoping that you and Steve could talk about your Wi-Fi, layouts, and best practices. We've already made sure that our, RP, our, our APs are not in closets. The tops of the devices are pointing in the direction where they'll get the most use. And we're using Cat6 between them and the router. We're using PFSense on separate device as the router. I'd love to hear your thoughts on some additional points. Are lots of smaller access points better than larger, more powerful ones, given the old farmhouse and materials? Will shielded cat cables make a difference for this? Or is it about radio signal from the AP? Should all the APs be of equal power max bandwidth or the furthest edge for the AP for the smaller and less powerful? Does the same band, brand across all APs make a big difference? At what point should I consider totally upgrading all devices to the prosumer or Soho devices? Any additional insights you may have, if it's helpful, most devices are Netgear Nighthawks, along with some other random APs that my father tested out for the total footprint we would need to cover is about 5,000 square feet, including patio spaces. Thanks again for all of your hard work. Looking forward to calling into the show in the coming weeks and joining you and the community. Appreciate all that you do. Best, Norm. So, Steve, what are your thoughts for Norm? What would you do if you were in Norm's house and you were trying to get coverage of 5,000 square feet? Yeah, if if I was on a budget and I have been in this exact situation before, you end up with a bunch of uh, like a mishmash of, of things that you've turned into access points. It can work. Ultimately, it is my opinion that that you the prosumer or Soho uh, style, especially mesh, or or if not mesh, the ability to hand off between access points becomes Zero. really critical. Yes, right. Um, especially when you're when you're trying to do this, that 
falls down when you're kind of piecemealing a bunch of Nighthawks together that don't really do that and don't have something that's coordinating there. It's so for, in my opinion, I wouldn't go with a bunch of small access points because the more traffic that you have, the more, um, the more interference you may be causing yourself. And now that's just my opinion, but I, I would think that your best route is to treat this like almost like an, a, professional installation where you're actually going through and mapping out the Wi-Fi dead zones and figuring out where the optimal places are to put access points. Cause that's going to be your best bet, I think. So I agree with 95% of what you said. The only thing that I would push back on a little bit is the, you know, one larger access points versus smaller ones. Uh, what I've seen is if you have, if you have a bunch of little access points that are at very low power, you tend to have a better overall result than larger ones. And the reason for that is because if you have a smaller access point and you, and when we say smaller, I don't really mean smaller. Really, I would use U6s everywhere. That's what I would do. I would buy U6s and I would put them, they're the same price as the UAP AC Pro. They've come back down in price for a while. They were in like the $200, $250 range. It was ridiculous. They're back down in that 140 area um, and they support Wi-Fi 6. So you purchase a number of those, crank the power all the way down and have each access point cover a smaller area. And that does a couple of things. First of all, it eliminates crosstalk. So you don't have these, you have two problems, right? You have the, the access point needs to be able to talk to the device, but then the device also needs to be able to talk back to the access point. And sometimes what you'll find is you get the perfect position for the access point and it can talk out. It can speak all over the place. The problem is it has difficulty hearing back from the individual devices. And so if you segment that out a little bit, and I would absolutely do what you were saying, Steve, and map out, you know, where are you going to be using the access points? And then I would, when you're looking for dead zones, what you're really looking for is if I'm standing here in my dead zone, I want to have 20 dB of separation from one access point to the other. And so if you put one access point up, you wait until you see that signal drop off by 20 decibels, put another access point. What you'll find in a, in a, in a, in a, in a just, if I was throwing figures out there, you'll get about 50 feet out of an access point, assuming walls and other th obstacles and things in your way and other interference and all of the things. Factor all that in, you'll you get about 50 feet away from an access point, and that's when you're going to see that about that 20 dB drop. Now, is it always practical to put in 5,000 square feet? to put an access point uh, every 50 feet? Probably not. But then again, you probably don't need Wi-Fi at every single corner of your house. So if you start with the main things, the living room, the patio, this, that, and the other, and add access points until you get sufficient coverage. The other thing, and Steve, you touched on this, zero handoff. So one of the things that is going to dramatically improve your performance, as, as opposed to individual ad hoc access points all over the place, what your client is doing, it's using something called RSSI to negotiate what access point it wants to associate with. So if you have two access points, different manufacturers, and you set the SSID to the same SSID, it's going to use RSSI and it's going to try to figure out who should I associate with, and it'll hang on to that signal until that RSSI threshold is reached, and then it will jump and say, okay, I'm gonna move over here. If you use something like a Unify or Ruckus, Ruckus much more expensive, Cisco much more expensive, but they all support something called zero handoff. And what zero handoff does is it takes that decision away from the client and puts it in the hands of the controller. So the controller now sits there with the access point and says to the client, hey, you have a really high RSSI. Here is what access point I want you on, so I'm gonna hold you here. When you start walking, 
through, so we use this example in a warehouse. Manager is sitting on a laptop in a warehouse, walking past, they have maybe a, a 10,000 square foot warehouse, and so they're jumping from one access point to the next. And we have a little video that plays that shows a guy on a video conference call, right? Very latency dependent. And he's jumping from one access point to the next, but because of the zero handoff, the controller's making the decision and telling the, the client, here's when you make the jump, and you'll always have a smooth experience from one access point to the next and you're just not you're never going to get something like that with individual access points from different manufacturers all kind of trying to do their part so those are some of like those are some of the 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 low-hanging fruit as it were that i I might knock off and say hey if you're trying to cover five thousand square that's a big house if you're trying to cover five thousand square feet i'd probably invest some money in some actual access points and i would put them up do some, you know, sit down, start with one and put it where you like it and see how far out you're going to get with the unifies. My guess is you're going to get a lot further than you think you will. And then as you see that, that, that threshold drop by 20 dB add another access point where you want it. When you get to the outdoor patio, you might look at, they call it a mesh. It's not actually a mesh or I wouldn't use it as a mesh access point, but they call it the mesh. It's an outdoor uh, unify access point. And that sucker, you put that on the back of your house and your neighbors will have Wi-Fi. Our third email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, so I got my parents a TP-Link mesh system and it had me create an account in order to configure it. It seems like not the most ideal from a security standpoint, but we the, the Unify mesh routers are better in terms of local configuration. Thanks, best, Jeremy. So I have to be honest with you, I'm personally not a mesh fan because it doesn't, It there's nothing that, de- I can't demonstrate profi- or efficiency with mesh, right? It by the very nature of mesh, it's a compromise. It's I don't I can't or I don't want to take the time, effort or money to get a hard link from my my point where I'm my network operation center, my knock to the individual point. So instead of doing that, what I want to do is I want to connect one wireless device to another wireless device. That being said, I am well aware that most ISPs are even going this route to where they have one router and then they have a second radio that communicates out to the access point and they they use mesh that way and they're using it's a duplex so it's speaking on one frequency and one radio back to the router and then it's using the other one for the actual wi-fi to kind of eliminate some of that those throughput issues but uh, you know so i i get that it's prevalent it's not personally what i would do I also recognize that sometimes you don't have a choice. Sometimes it just makes sense to do a wireless uplink. And Steve, if I remember right, that you actually did that in your old apartment. Uh, I actually have that set up in in my in-laws house because there was one spot where it was just not practical at all to run the ethernet because of the way the, the area was set up. So we have one access point out of three that is on the wireless backhaul. And for streaming, it's not bad you definitely notice it if you are trying to do some sort of real trans like real time thing like i don't know a skype call or something like that you know that you've gotten connected to the wireless backhole one because it's the latency is significantly higher our fourth email comes in from anonymous anonymous writes in and says hi no and steve first off i love the show i've been a listener since day one on the topic of elon's flight plan being on Elon Jet, the Twitter and Mastodon, and the flight track itself being on a map is 100% okay. My reasoning for this is the fact that every plane in the U.S. has to have an ADS-B transceiver on board and turned on 
unless you're the president or the military doing SH-8 flights. Those $15 DTV over-the-air USB dongles, perfectly okay to play around with ADSB. They are the receiver, and so no harm. I would also append, I would also add to that email that uh, Flight Radar 24 has ADSB receivers that they publish online for free. And so if you were one of the people, so I, so for example, in Grand Forks, if you pull ADSB data, you're pulling it from AltaSpeed. We have a receiver and we pull ADSB for, and send it to Flight Radar 24. And because we host one of their devices here in Grand Forks, they give us a free account that you can log into Flight Radar and see all the ADSB traffic. Uh, continuing on with the email, I didn't know that Elon Jet used to show their data. So a quick Google search takes you to Elon Jet Mastodon, and lo and behold, they're using ADSB Exchange. I use the same site to track my flight on recent trips thanks to T-Mobile in-flight Wi-Fi. Elon is saying that it's essentially assassination data or whatever crazy term he decided to call it, assassination coordinates, used to partially track. He's right because it's public data and you could in theory find him or at least where he's landing. But if he cared so much, he should just fly commercial. That's a lot more private because trying to find his flight number is a lot harder since he'd be flying on a plane plain sight. I get his point to be fair. It's a bit creepy, but Elon Jet isn't doing anything new since the ADSB site has the same data. Plus, Elon Jet has other info that I'm sure they did calculations like for dollars per fuel, CO2, usage, stuff like that. In my opinion, he's being a bit overdramatic about the whole thing. He could just use a different phrasing and I'd get his point across much better. Anyway, keep up the great job. So Steve, your thoughts. Because it, it did occur to me that this was public data, and that, I mean, that isn't something new, right? No, it's not something new. But you know what? We also draw a line when people are doxxed or otherwise have their information dumped on the internet, such as their address and stuff, which is public information. But we also have drawn the line there as, like, this is not socially acceptable as a general rule. Like, hmm. maybe you can make an argument that's changing, but at least previously that was unacceptable. I would further say that... Uh, there's a lot of things that are accessible if you know how to do them, but making them widely accessible to the to the wider audience uh, widens the reach of the thing that you can do. So like you might have some crazy person that actually is deranged enough to go do something bad, but have no idea how to get that information, even if it is public. So I don't know. I, I still fall on the side of, well, the privacy person to me always falls on the side of like, nah, the public doesn't really need to know this just because it is publicly accessible doesn't need you mean you need to make a big fanfare about it. And when you are as big of a personality as Elon is or pick anybody else, you know, I'm I'm sure the senators would not particularly enjoy having <laughs> that level of scrutiny on their travel. Right. You might you might have some Secret Service people come and knocking at your door. Yeah, I. You know, my, my my knee-jerk gut reaction is to say, well, the information's already on the Internet. So it's not people putting it on the Internet. It's already there. I see your point, though. It It's there if you know where to look and you understand how ADSB works and you know where that data is reported and you know how to search for a tail number and you know how to... I get it. There's a series of steps. It's a lot more difficult to be like, gee, I wonder what's going on in the world today. Oh, Twitter.com. Oh, look at that. Elon just landed. I get it. You know, it opens it up to the... You know, it, it just removes the hassle factor. And for what purpose? I mean, that was kind of our point last week, right? To what end? What is the purpose of this? I, I get the whole tracking CO2. I get fuel consumption, stuff like that. But really, posting the lo live location data isn't really going to do that. You'd have to actually, somebody would have to actually do the calculations to, 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 to bear that out. So if you really want, if that's really the goal, then 
just post those calculations. Elon spent X amount of dollars on fuel while complaining about clean energy or whatever. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I can see it from both sides, but I, I appreciate that this discussion can make its way into the open source slash privacy community and that we can kind of be even handed about it as out the things that we've been passionate about for years start their, to make their way into the limelight. Our fifth email comes in from Brandon. Brandon writes up, writes in and says, hi, guys, I wanted to do a quick follow up on the multiple account suggestions from a couple of episodes. But I really like Steve's suggestion of using containers for this. I have a few clients with internal sites, Jira, PrivateGet, etc., and they have a policy that their VPN connections come from a Windows PC, or in my case, a Windows VM. I needed a solution that was a little easier to use cross-platform, and the sync feature from Firefox was the easiest way to manage that side of it. I ended up using the Mozilla plugin that Steve recommended, and it works great. I'm not sure why I didn't find this when I came across Profile Switcher for Firefox plugin that I mentioned. I'm also looking at Noah's approach to treating physical machines like cattle using Ansible. I'm 90%-ish there, but on my laptop and looking at my desktop with the same intent. Noah's talk on Matrix itself got the ball rolling for me, and I just wanted to say thanks, Brandon. So huge thanks to Brandon for writing in. Um, Steve, any follow-up to that? Not really. I think last week we we chatted about the uh, the plugin and how I started using it too. So mm-hmm. that. I'll just call out the name. It's it's just called the, it is called uh, multi-account containers for for Firefox. And so, if you're interested, go check that out. That's that's what Brandon's referencing here. Our sixth email comes in from Corey. Corey writes in and says, Hey, no and Steve, just a quick update on the X270 Lenovo I wrote about last week. I was looking into the forums about the external battery issue, and I narrowed it down to the six cell battery needing to be a Lenovo OEM part, just like you said. Like you said, they can be a bit picky about third-party batteries. I was lucky enough to find one on Amazon, although I try to avoid ordering from Amazon whenever I can. I couldn't find one anywhere else, but I got a 6-cell 68-plus battery. Lenovo brand worked great. I'm wondering if I should replace the internal battery, though it seems to be working okay. Maybe I'll let it live its life out. Life seems to be good. I feel like a little over $300, and it was a great deal. I wish more people found value in older machines. A 7th Gen i7 coupled with decent RAM with a great MVME performs more than enough for most people's everyday use. There's no need to go out and buy the latest and greatest machine. Anyway, I know you're on the same page when it comes to older machines. I just wish more people found the value in them. Cheers, and have a merry, merry Christmas. Corey. Corey, we hope you have a Merry Christmas and coming up on a Happy New Year as well. I I will tell you this. So I, after email, I went through and grabbed two X270s, tried to replicate your issue, didn't make any any heads or tails of it. So I'm I'm glad you were able to get this resolved. I would tell you this. I have a T420. It's a fairly old ThinkPad. It runs Arch. And the entire reason that I keep that thing around is to prove really to myself, but also to to the people that are like, I need a $2,000 laptop to do my job. I can get everything I need to get done in a day on that laptop if I have to. Is it the most pleasant thing? No, because it doesn't have a 1080p display. It doesn't have Thunderbolt. It doesn't. Have, there's all of these nice little niceties that I, I, I luxuries that I come to appreciate, and I'm glad that modern laptops and newer technology exists, and I'm glad that we're moving forward. But this idea that you need a new computer to do, like, yes, if you're doing, you know, CAD design and, you know, you might do something that requires the the, the bleeding edge of the machine or you're a developer and you're, you're running, you know, 65 virtual machines on your laptop at one time to simulate a bunch of, them. okay, fine. There are exceptions, but for, you're right. For the vast majority of people, go buy yourself a used laptop, Throw a, a, throw a nice SSD in there, and you'll be shocked at how much life you can get out of it. So I'm, I'm glad we share that 
Um, I'm sure, glad we share that in, in in comments. Steve, what is the oldest laptop you have running or that you're using? Not, not I don't know laptop. about laptop. Yeah. Uh, I have an original i7, like the very first i7 that came out is still in my kid's gaming computer. And okay. all I did was I upgraded, I, I put an AMD graphics card in it a couple of years ago and it's still running like a champ. That's awesome. See, you can get life out of tech and you can avoid the e-waste and uh, participate in having a long sustainable technology. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of December 25th, 2022, here's the Linux and open source headlines. 25 years after the initial GNU PG release, version 2.4 has come out. Cody 19.5 is out. Darktable 4.2.0 has been released. IceWM 3.3 has been released. OpenBMC 2.12 has come out. The Tails team has announced Tails 5.8 with a redesign of the persistent storage feature. Manjaro 22 Sakaris has come out with either XFCE 4.18, KDE 5.26, or GNOME 43 as the default desktop. Speaking of GNOME, it only took 18 years, but they finally added an icon view to the native file picker. Haiku, the open source reimplementation of BOS, has announced that it has reached its beta 4 release. In security news, there's an SMB vulnerability with a CVSS score of 10 for those that use the kernel-level KSMBD module instead of the classic userland implementation. And the Linux Foundation has announced that its AgStack project will host a new open-source codebase, along with a fully automated continuous computation engine, to aid in such things as food traceability, carbon tracking, crop production, and other field-level analytics. How do you fund open source and how do you make it a sustainable project? Well, that is the question that the Matrix Foundation is up against. And they published a blog article on Christmas. Uh, you can read the entire thing at matrix.org, but from it, quote, we've seen an amazing number of major players entering the Matrix ecosystem. Reddit appears to be building out a new chat functionality using Matrix. TeamSpeak announced Matrix-based chat in TS5. Discourse is working on adding Matrix support. Thunderbird launched Matrix support. Governments from Luxembourg, Ukraine have launched their own Matrix-powered chat infrastructures. And hundreds of other organizations ranging from startups to massive private and public sectors entities are, battling, are, are betting on the protocol. The European Parliament has used Matrix as a proof point for the visibility and communication and interoperability between gatekeepers in the Digital Markets Act. Rocket Chat has launched Federation via Matrix. So you would think, and I, from the article, they talk about the fact that they've over doubled their user base. So they went from like 40 million to 80 million, 44.1 million to 80.3 million matrix IDs. So a lot of people have received the message of matrix and have gotten on board. And indeed what we've done, so we switched over to it at Alta Speed. We switched over to, I guess, first we switched over to it from Ask Noah in the community. Then we switched over at AltaSpeed. Then I started pushing it to our clients when they said, hey, we want, you know, intercompany chat. I said, have you checked this out? I cannot tell you how big of a selling point it is when you tell them, hey, you can sign up just like Slack. It's cheaper than Slack. So you pay a monthly fee, you get your users. And oh, by the way, when you have guest users or you have somebody like an intern that's going to be here for a little bit or, and this we run into, we have static machines that are assigned to users, but you want them to have the ability to send messages in the company chat. So you can sign up for a free matrix account. And because of federation, they can communicate with your company's chat infrastructure. 
Clients love it. They go nuts. Oh, that's fantastic. No place else offers that. It, you know, Teams and Slack and all of those places, they all charge for a lot of those features. And here it is for free. So that's fantastic. Well, you would think if you double the users from 44 million to 80 million, that there would be no shortage of fundage, right? F- funding, right? But that isn't the case. In fact, they're in desperate need of funding. From the article or from the blog post, quote, only a handful of these initiatives have resulted in funding research or funding reaching the core matrix team. This is directly putting the core matrix development at risk. And we are witnessing a classic tragedy of the commons. We've released all of the foundational code of matrix as permissibly licensed open source got it to the point that anyone can successfully run it at scale themselves. The network is expanding exponentially, but in return, it transpires that the vast majority of these commercial deployments fail to contribute financially to the matrix foundation, whether by donating directly or supporting indirectly by working with element who fund the vast majority of the core matrix development today. In short, folks who love the amazing decentralized encrypted communication utopia of matrix, but organizations also love that they can use it without having to pay anyone to develop or maintain it. And this is completely unsustainable element is now literally unable to fund the entirety of the matrix foundation on behalf of everyone else and has to lay, had to lay off some of the folks working on the core team as a result. And so, this is obviously really disappointing. If you're one of the people that worked at, 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 at Matrix and you got let go, who is responsible for that, right? Because at the end of the day, the companies exist in two ledgers. They exist in income and they exist in outgo. And when you have more expenses than you have money coming in, that company is no longer sustainable. And so what Matri- what the Matrix Foundation and Element is up against is they created a really fantastic product. I've seen firsthand how fast it sells because people like the idea of never having to change again, that they can buy into something and they can host it or own it or whatever. Now, to a degree, that's probably our customer base because that's what they've come to expect from multi-speed technologies. But this is a huge problem. So my question is, what has what did Matrix what is Matrix doing wrong? Is aren't they following exactly what we tell companies that they should do? Aren't they holding to the open source ideals of, hey, we're going to put a product out there. We're going to provide the open source code. We're not going to we're not going to put it behind a paywall, any of the things. And we will open up our organization to fund, you know, commercial features so that people that want custom development or want things done are able to pay us to do so. Haven't they done all of the things right, approached all of the governments, approached all of the public entities that would have an interest in this? Why are they in this boat? Um, So, Steve, you've been kind of, I, I won't say critical of Matrix, but you've been not uh, not as gung ho as I have been to jump onto the Matrix bandwagon as a third as as kind of the outside looking in. What do you see here? What do you think they could have done differently or could be doing differently to change how they are able to fund and sustain their product? It's a really tough problem. I mean, we've been wrestling with this problem the last fifteen years at least, and part of the part of the challenge here is that you need to get user adoption. And the way you get user adoption for things like this is by allowing them to use it for free because people are not going to go and pay for, they're not going to go and pay for the thing that's untested, generally speaking. So you need to build up a user base in order to to get enough of a percentage of the people to actually donate to you to continue funding it. The problem is, is when you grow in 
popularity as they have. And just most chat problem programs have this. Twitter had this and, mm-hmm. and Telegram has this and so on. You you get mass adoption, but nobody's actually going to pay for it because there's always something else that's free out there. And so this is not a problem of, of even open source. This is just a problem of we still really struggle with um, the legacy of Google coming in and carpet bombing the, the software industry <laughs> by providing free stuff, free in air quotes, you know, and so the well-meaning stuff, the the well-meaning people like Matrix. And to be clear, I've never been down on the project itself. It's just been right. a why. Like it's, it, I haven't seen anything super compelling for to try and break through the network effect. But be that as it may, it boils down to you have something good, people want to use it, but everybody has been conditioned for the last decade or more to either have something that's ad-supported or to have it free, and again, free in air quotes. Uh-huh. So when when you you have a really good product that's catching on like wildfire you either have to say you know what we actually have to start putting up like a wall around this you can go self-host it that's cool because that's not going to beat up on our the cost that we are sustaining to to handle this but you know you have to start you have to start somewhere with with providing a way for people to give back like I think Nextcloud yes. would be an interesting way figure out how they've done it because they have the same thing, but but somehow they're managing to support themselves. You know, I think you're on to something when you say find a way to. So I'll t- I'll tell you, I when when Ma- when I when Matrix first came out and I started going to clients and talking to them about this, one of the things that I got not infrequently was this sounds fantastic. The only thing is, if we're going to go with this matrix funny thing instead of Slack, if you tell us that it can be self-hosted and all of that, we want to do that. We would want it on our premise. But, you know, we're not going to maintain that. We don't know anything about matrix or any of this stuff. So how much does the company charge to come in and set it up on our server and then maintain it for us? When you have a problem, we'll call them. And I reached out to their sales and said, hey, is there any way to do this? And the answer I got back it was essentially, you know, we're willing to work with organizations, but they have to be of a certain size. Like we can't do that for organizations that have like 25 users. It just isn't cost effective. We're too far behind on our other goals. And I, I wonder if, would it make any sense to have a portion of Element or EMS dedicated to, okay, you have of this available for people to do. Is there a way that you can buy consulting services at a flat rate to help people with 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 their with their implementation or their infrastructure i think people would pay for that i know that i have clients would have paid for that i know that when we were setting matrix up for linux delta we would have paid for that and that wasn't available to it now i get it there's only so much any one organization can do but you know when i go to matrix.org and i click on foundation i don't see any way to donate money to i don't see any way to straight up support these guys like if i made a call today and said Hey, everybody that's listening to this program, go out and support Matrix. How would they do that? Because you can sign up for EMS, but, it's, you know, past that, there is no way to pay for a specific feature or just donate money or, you know, support them on Patreon. There's no consistent way to do that. I think that might be something Matrix might want to explore. It's a challenge, right? Because I imagine they also have some issues with, I don't want to say the tax man because I don't know how it works across different countries, but I know that that 
I've heard people like Martin Wimpress and other people say, you know, it's just not worth my hassle to to be able to handle this kind of income. And so maybe they're suffering mm. from the same thing. Like we have to funnel it a certain way into the business for the accounting reasons or whatever. Yeah, that could very well be. You know, the other thing, and again, I'm just spitballing here. What do I know about running multi-million dollar open source projects? Nothing, right? But at the same time, I wonder if it wouldn't make sense to then, if that's that being the case, like, could you partner with other organizations that would help do that, right? You know, so for example, hey, we'll come in, we'll even provide some of the technical expertise to get these people up and running. If we get in over our head, we come to you, you help us out as part of that. We'll collect the money from the customers and we'll structure the plans, do all those things. And then we'll give you a piece of the pie because you're ultimately supporting it. I just, I think there are some creative solutions out there that we'd like to explore, but as a person who is immensely benefited from the matrix ecosystem, immensely, I have entire, you know, workflows and entire processes that have been built around the concept of matrix and the abilities that it affords me to where if something happens, it, it reaches out through a very specific process and says, okay, I'm going to take this action, this action, this action, and it sends these alerts to these places. And then when alerts come in, all of these things happen. So things happen at my house, things happen in my car, things happen on my phone, things happen with my little Palm Pre that I carry with me 24-7, 365. There's all sorts of little things that Matrix has has enabled me to do, and I'm incredibly grateful to the people that made this possible, and I very much want to see, I can see why their user base has doubled in size. I can see why when people try it, they get hooked. I just don't know, this has been, it's an interesting, it's been an interesting journey for me because this has been the open source project I have followed from the get-go. I have followed before it was a product, back when it was in beta, when it was just getting tested, when it barely worked, I was paying attention to it kind of loosely. And then we started using it at Linux Delta. Really, we used it to, to host self one year and it was just out of beta at that point. And I got into the habit of every day, I would just go to the GitHub and I would look at what issues were opened. How, how did they go about asking for information from users? How did people open a bug request? How did the commits come in? How did they structure a plan? And I was able to watch from the ground up. I was watching an open source project born, grow, and succeed. And it's been such a cool opportunity to watch that happen in the open space and then to get sucked in myself and derive a certain amount of income from, from doing stuff like this. I, that's been really fantastic. So to watch them kind of hit this plateau and say, okay, so now we got all these users. Nobody wants to support us. I have to ask the question, what are they doing wrong and what could they do differently? So if you have an answer to that question, I invite you to write in live at asknoahshow.com. Immutable desktops, I wonder if they are not the future. Do you think they're the future of computing technology? So the idea of immutable desktop is this. It's a read-only root file system that's far, that, that prevents things like ransomware or other software from writing to the file system. Instead, they use an image-based means to roll back. Essentially, they create layers. So if you think about it, you have like your base layer where you have your base OS. And then on the top of that, when you make changes, you're making it to layers on top. And this separates the user land from the operating system, which not only adds a layer of security, but also means that there's less opportunity for the user to accidentally break their system to an unrecoverable way. And one of my kids got a Steam Deck for Christmas this year, 
And they were playing with it a little bit. And as part of doing that, they started hacking on it and installing software that wasn't really designed to be there and trying different things and started to make me a little bit nervous. And I looked over and said, you might want to factory reset that thing. Why, Dad? Because if it works, then you know you can hack all you want. And if you break it, you just factory reset the thing. If you have problems, let's find the problems now while it's still relatively new and relatively unmodified. And so they tried a factory reset, and the only real bug that they hit was it got stuck in this boot loop because it needed internet to do the update, and it didn't have internet because factory resetting it wiped the Wi-Fi credentials. So it was this catch-22 thing. And in our case, we just took a Type-C dock, plugged a wired Ethernet cable in, it had internet, it came back, everything was fine. But if you didn't know that you were up against that, like the average user might pull it out and go, well, now what? can't get into it to connect it to Wi-Fi. It says it doesn't have internet. I don't know anything about auto negotiation. You know, I don't have a type C dock laying around with wired ethernet, all of those kinds of things that that could be a thing that stops you. But outside of that small little issue, what was really interesting to me about the steam deck is it doesn't matter what changes you make to it. When you apply the next update, it wipes them all because it's an immutable file system. Now, there's one command you can run if you want to dig into it and you want to have access to write files, but by default, it prevents you from hurting yourself. So I, this, you're seeing this happen more and more. It's available, of course, on the Steam Deck, but it's also available with things like Fedora Silverblue, with Fedora Kinolite, uh, with Puppy Linux, NixOS, uh, Porteous Linux, TinyCore. All of these have the same idea where all the user configuration is stored in a separate file. Everything else is on a separate layer and revisions are done in layers. And so the user doesn't necessarily have access to the root file system, or if they do, they're not able to write changes to it. And so whatever you do after a reboot or after an upgrade is gone. And it, 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 it kind of almost automates what we've done with things like ZFS and snapshots to where I can roll back to any point in time that you're starting to see that come out on on Linux desktops environments. And so my question and Steve, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. Is this the future of uh, computing environments because you can do things in an immutable way and make it difficult, if not impossible, for the user to hurt themselves? Does it enable a user to have access to all of the latest and greatest things to be able to play to the heart's content without ever having to worry about jeopardizing their stability? I think that there's definite potential there. I wonder whether this will give uh, certain manufacturers the ability to keep things locked down even more. That's and true. I, I wonder about that. I see I see really good potential, especially from from falling back from crash failure. So we we'll speaking about the Steam Deck. I had there was a, a situation I had with my Steam Deck where it got stuck. Like I couldn't turn it off by pushing and holding the power button. I couldn't do anything on the screen. It was it was literally just stuck. And I don't know what it did, but it eventually fixed itself. Like I just let it sit there. I plugged the charger in, let it sit there. Eventually, it fixed itself. It rebooted several times, and then it must have wiped itself because I saw like a little progress bar, and it the progress bar got to the end, and I was back in. And so I can huh. definitely see what you're talking about, where uh, essentially some game did something really nasty. I don't know what it did, but it caused a, a pretty bad fault, and the huh. system recovered without me having to do anything. I just basically left it on. That's so fantastic. See, that's something I can give my grandmother. That's something I can give my mother. That's something I can give my sister. That's something I can give my kids and say, here, go play with it. And even my more techie kids who say, well, I want to go, I want to install this thing, or I want to see if I can get the software to run, or I want to see if I okay, knock yourself out. At the end of the day, if it doesn't work, go down to system, reset, factory reset, and, and Bob's your uncle. So 
I like the idea. You're right, though. There is an element of control here, right? It, it, it has the potential to slide into the TVization of Linux to where because companies can keep users from hurting themselves, they don't stop at, okay, we're going to stop users from hurting themselves and then we'll give them the option to go further if they want. That's not necessarily required, is it? I mean, they could just say, no, you don't get to make any changes because we don't want problems and that isn't the purpose of this. It's not meant to be hacker friendly. We just want to use Linux for the stability. That would be a step backwards in my opinion. I mean, we've we've kind of called out Apple for this already. This this show, mm-hmm. and that's exactly kind of how they're they're doing things. Yeah, okay, it's based on not Linux, but the point is the same. Is essentially they've decided you can't install anything except for their their blessed apps. Now yep. there's some stuff happening over in the EU that may or may not change that, but um, you know it's been like that for what, 15 years? How long has the iPhone been around? I don't even know. About that. But, 2002, 2000, well, maybe later than that, 2006, 2007, somewhere in there. Yeah. So, I mean, we've already had, we've watched this in, in practice and, you know, I I can see that building on top of Linux as a base would be very advantageous for manufacturers to be able to do this if they nailed it down right. And to some extent, that, that could be be a good bonus to the world. You know, this could be a boon because there's a lot of things that you might be able to do industrial applications and stuff like that yes. where the thing crashes and comes back on its own. Yes, exactly. That's exactly. So this is what appeals to me, right? At, at first when I read the, the articles of the Steam Deck and it was talking about shipping with Arch, I thought Valve is either the craziest company ever known to man or they know something that the rest of the world doesn't. And it turns out they were just skating ahead of the puck. And so they knew that they needed Arch. A, it separates them from any sort of corporate tie, right? Because it's just basically pure Linux. On top of that, they're in control of it. So they're not taking updates just willy nilly from Arch, it's not necessarily bleeding edge. They're they're harvesting the best parts of Arch, which is the availability of the latest packages when they want them, when they need them. But then they've curated it into a static image that they can control, that they can quality test, that they can make sure that it works and tests. And then they push that out to their users. And so they're beholden to no one. They own their own product. They allow users to use their own product and it doesn't it it doesn't break. It's recoverable. You get all of the same advantages of having like an Android smartphone that you can reset, except it's actual Linux underneath. So my experience has just been so unbelievably positive that I have started to shift my mind to say, I think this if I'm looking at trends coming in in the near future, I suspect you're going to see a whole lot more of immutable operating systems because I see a lot of advantages and very, very few cons. Is this this the point where I take a victory lap and say, I told you so? Yes, it is. (laughs) I've been digging at you for a while. Like, hey, this is something you should check out. And you're like, "Ah, I don't know. I'm not really a gamer, blah, blah, blah. Turns out it's actually uh, worth taking a look at. The Steam Deck, I would say, having hands-on experience with it, I would say that my opinion now is that is so... F- like, if you want a awesome game machine... My, so, one of my, my kids got a gift of... Um, they the, One of their friends had Injustice 2. And so, of course, they had to have Injustice 2. And one of my ongoing frustrations has been we spend $40, $50, $60 of our money on a thing before we've ever looked to see if it works on our machine. And of course, this enters the cycle of like, well, what machine do I need to run that game? I don't want to go down that route because if we go down that route, the very next question you need to answer for me is, what is your budget? You make $7 a month, you know, cleaning the you know dog poo up and, and feeding the dog. So at, at that clip rate, 
how much money are you prepared to allocate towards your gaming hobby? Because that is a never ending bucket, right? Whatever it is today that you need to buy to run the game that you bought today, tomorrow there will be a newer game that requires a newer graphics card or a newer thing. That is just a never-ending pit. So we are going to learn to be responsible adults, and to do that, that means we're going to budget our money, we're going to save ahead of time, and then we're going to apply a reasonable amount of money to entertainment, and it won't be everything we have. And so, so that ongoing discussion has... I don't know, shaped the way that to where my kids are were are hesitant now of buying games until they pay attention to if it's going to work on their system. It was of note to me that the Steam Deck, I literally haven't found a game we can't run yet. To include just Injustice 2, which they tried on four different machines and couldn't get it to run. Proton, all of the things. The Glorious Egg Roll, trying the different versions. I mean, you name it, somebody in our house has tried it and couldn't get that game to run. And the Steam Deck pulled it out of the box clicked on it, hit install, five, you know, it was a 40 gig download, so it took a while to get there. But once it got there, ran just fine. And so if you want a solid gaming machine, I would tell you it is a solid gaming machine. But you know the other part of it? I would tell you that is a fantastic little pocket computer. Absolutely fantastic. You pair it with the Steam Dock, where you get HDMI and a full keyboard and mouse and all the things. That's a full-on little computer is what it is, with KDE pre-installed. I mean, the KDE is kind of a knock in my books. No, I'm just <sighs> kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, I I think that the UI could use some work though on on the Steam Deck form form factor. Sure, but yeah, I I wholeheartedly concur. I told my dad that I was like, you know, you carry your 17 inch laptop, <laughs> you buy this Steam Deck and and a dock, and you just drop it on any TV that you're at, right? Like that's it. You basically are bringing your entire system with you, and you wouldn't even. You don't have to worry about did I install this game? Can it run? Because he he doesn't buy gaming laptops, right? Mm-hmm. He's a he's a chartered accountant, you know. He but you you just bring this, you drop it in a dock, and you've got your games with you. You can drop to the desktop if you want to do like your emails and all the other stuff that you do, and it's uh, and it's solid, right? Like he can't break it, and it's more powerful than most than a lot of laptops. That was blew me away. That little AMD graphics card that they have in there. Uh, that was custom made for the Steam Deck. I mean, it's just an insanely powerful little machine. It is a great thing. I I have been really impressed. Like I, honestly, I primarily use it in the dock because I I put the dock in in the bedroom and mm-hmm. my wife will play on her Steam Deck and I'll play I'll drop mine in the dock and then we just kind of play. Um, I use it like a console, kind of like the the Switch. But I I do exactly what you said. I drop down to the to the desktop. Mm-hmm. Sort of frequently while I'm just I just kind of pull it out of my backpack because it's it's easy to carry around. And I just pull it out. Yep. And there's my my desktop like I'd prefer I'd prefer GNOME. But you know what? Uh, it's Linux and I'll take it. Yeah. And truthfully, I mean, if you really got desperate enough, you could probably install GNOME. Yeah. No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the other thing, one of my kids got a 3D printer. And so we've done one segment on 3D printing. And I wanted to do a follow-up because, man, have I learned stuff in the in the past 24 hours. And really, my takeaway, if I got, if you take nothing else away from this episode as, as it relates to 3D printing, take this away. I promise you it is far easier than you ever could have imagined. They have this dialed into a fine freaking science. So we wound up with the Creality Ender th- uh, 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 3S uh, S1 Pro. And the thing that I liked about it in particular was it has two features. It has auto bed leveling, which means that you don't have to manually adjust the little uh, little cranks at the sides. You can do that and you should do that to start with, but then you hit a button and it just automatically levels the bed. And the second thing is 
it heats the bed. So I, quite honestly, I, I had to ask a couple of people. So I asked you five sis. I said, how did you do this before they had heated beds? Because I would think that the plastic would never stick. I mean, once it cools down, it comes straight loose. While it's heated up, it sticks to it like glue. It's, it's like concrete. You can't get it off of there. And he said painter's tape. So if you don't have a heated bed, take a piece of painter's tape, set it down, and apparently the 3D, um, the PLA will stick right to that a lot better. The other thing is with the, the Creality, uh, the, the Pro version, it enables you to print at a higher temperature. So you can do PLA, ABS, or PETG. Um, FreeCAD, designing all of the stuff in FreeCAD, you export those out, and then we're using Ultimaker Cura to slice them. I have to tell you, this is a fantastic piece of software. The fact that you can just check a box and say, I want a flat base adhesion. You click on adhesion, and it just makes a little base for you to to print on so that it's not sliding all over the, the, the plate. Second thing you could do is you can click on a button and just click on supports, and it'll automatically figure out where to put supports for any of the parts that aren't natively supported and would just otherwise be printing in air. And then we get to being able to download stuff off the internet. This blew my mind, Steve. The ability to go to places like Thingiverse or Colts 3D and download a design that somebody else made for me and slice it and throw it on the printer and an object appears means that any object I can think of, I can will into existence just by finding one online. My daughter described it like shopping for free stuff. She's like, I can go shopping for toys, but instead of having to put my money in, I just download the design and I can go print it. So all she wants is more and more material, more and more uh, filament so she can keep printing. The, uh, the, the last thing I want to mention is, so with the S1, they have a little controller, a little keypad that allows you to control the printer so you can just drop the the g-code file right onto an sd card and click print and it's like a little touch screen that allows you to pick the object you want and it just spits out the object well i looked into it a little bit further it turns out creality actually makes a device called the creality sonic pad we'll have a link for you in the show notes but it allows you to do that with any creality printer all right, that'll do it for our time. Music and Areas Mayors, we're out of time. We'll be back next week, 6 p.m. Central. We record on Tuesdays. AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week.